interviews with inspiring people. First episode, Claire Chase. Let's put all of this good energy into the world of flute music and solo performance. <laughs> Hardest freaking piece I've ever played. Say, are you playing the horn or are you playing the calm? Let's get <laughs> flutey. And, and so music, like love, uh, is, I mean, for me, it's, it's the essence of being alive. Hello, friends. Uh, this is Claire Chase with me, and I'm so glad you accepted. <laughs> Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. We're here in Darmstadt. We just had an amazing time with an amazing group of people, with the most amazing, unbelievable flutists. Thank you so much. It was such a joy, really, through and through. How would you describe yourself or define yourself, you know? Hmm. Um, as a flutist, as a human being, what's your role? Hmm. You, know? <laughs> you know, I'm just Claire. <laughs> I know. and I'm not super into definitions and laundry lists of things that I do and categories and identities. I mean, I'm a lot of things. We all contain multitudes. Yeah. I'm yeah. just Claire. <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay. Sorry not to give you more theory or... You don't uh, have to. That's, <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> uh, more serious question. What is your favorite food? Oh, very serious question. Artichokes. I have loved artichokes since I had teeth. I think even before I had teeth, I liked the idea of artichokes. And then as soon as I had teeth, <laughs> I wanted artichokes every year on my birthday. And I still have artichokes every year on my birthday. I think it's just the most exquisite and bizarre and wonderful, delicious food. I can relate to that. I love artichokes and my favorite pizza is the one of artichokes. Oh, quattro so stagione. good. So right? good. <laughs> you are a bit into food and cooking the food with people. And especially you told us during the class that you love to cook with composer Kinnan. Say a little bit more about it. Well, I mean, I just love to break bread with the people that I'm working with. And I think it's really important. I think it's an, actually an essential part of any creative process is getting together and breaking bread. And whether that means making a meal together, which is my preferred way, or going out to eat or having a picnic or whatever, it's, it's, a, it's an essential part of the process for me. What is my favorite experience? I mean, I actually, one of the most unexpected and lovely things that happened during the pandemic when I was teaching online, I was teaching a group of young artists, musicians, interdisciplinary artists, a lot of composers, a lot of improvisers um, at Harvard, many of whom don't major in music, but they identify differently as artists of all stripes. And They were, you know, in their late teens, early 20s mm -hmm. and living on their own for the first time. They were living with roommates in the midst of a pandemic. And I would see them on Zoom every day for hours. We'd also have private sessions. We'd have one-on-one -on -one sessions and then small group sessions in class with their collaborators and then large group sessions with people in a bunch of different disciplines. So we'd have historians, arts curators, Musicians, improvisers, biologists, anthropologists, choreographers, all in a room together talking about 
process in the pandemic, right? Yeah. So it occurred to me after several of these one-on-one sessions that a lot of these kids who were living alone for the first time had no idea how to cook for themselves. And the low-income students were out of money because they were ordering takeout and they didn't know how to shop for themselves and they didn't know how to cook affordably. And so I was like, you know what? We're going to have a cooking improvisation, spontaneous composition class. So I hosted an evening. This is the kind of thing that you can do over Zoom. I mean, this never would have happened if we (laughs) hadn't been living on Zoom, right? So I hosted a make a pot of curry that will feed you for nine days session that also involved composition and improvisation exercises and everybody had their instruments and... um, so would you like fit little moments of music when yeah, the, the we would just do a little we just do a little like jam that? in between. But basically, I gave them all a shopping list that cost under twenty dollars. I told them exactly what to get. That's amazing. Brands and everything, and we made a curry together that lasted them over a week. And then I gave them all kinds of tools about you know how to doctor it up, and if you have frozen peas or frozen whatever, you can put that in with some extra spices on the third day. Some extra rice, if you've got a protein, you know, like, you just keep it going. You keep it varied and keep it going and keep the toppings going. And so, but that was actually, I I think, one of my favorite cooking experiences. And it was online, of all things. (laughs) And I hate being online, but that was a really rich... The best part, though, was we had this... I thought everybody would go... I mean, we were there for, like, two hours. I thought people would go on their way, their merry way afterwards... And everybody wanted to just have this big kind of like Thanksgiving style, awkward Zoom family dinner afterwards. And it was so adorable. Everybody just wanted to show their curry and eat their curry and eat like a family and just let the conversation go in a gazillion different directions. And it was so lovely. (laughs) Wow. It's, I think it's very touching. And actually there's another question from Phoebe about your teachers Mm -hmm. and you were talking about them. Would you like to cite maybe three of them um, and what they taught you? Mm, Such a wonderful question. Thank you, Phoebe. Um, Well, the most important mentor in my life is the late, great Pauline Oliveros. And I was just so privileged to know her from the time that I was very young. I, I have memories of Pauline when I was two or three years old when she was at UC San Diego, and she was just this awesome hippie barefoot with her accordion. I just thought she was the coolest human on the planet, (laughs) and she is. Um, And I reconnected with her later um, when I was in college. She ended up writing the very first piece. We call it Opus One for the Ice Ensemble. She wrote us our very, very first commissioned piece and was our first advisory board member of, of the organization before I even know knew what an advisory board did. <laughs> Pauline was like, I'll be on your advisory board. You need one. Wow. And she's just, I mean, Pauline continues even after she has made her transition. Pauline continues to show up for me at every important and every difficult and every joyous occasion of my life. Mm. So she really is, um, she's the most important mentor of mine. And of course, we've talked a lot about her this week and played a lot of her music. And there's so many teachings. I mean, we could have a whole podcast just about the teachings of Pauline. But if I had to pick just one, it would be what she has said about listening, that how we listen creates our life. And that listening is the basis of all culture. That changed my brain. And it changed 
continues to change my ears every day. And that is the reason that I do music. So I have many other teachers who taught me a great many wonderful and important things, but I think the best way to answer that question is with the single teaching that was the most transformative and continues to be the most transformative teaching. Because the beautiful thing about teaching is that when, when it's really good, you continue to learn from those teachings and the teacher continues to learn. The teacher is practicing what they themselves most want to learn. And that for me is, it's, um, well, that's just the most beautiful exchange, you know, because we're in mutuality with one another. There isn't this depositing of knowledge <laughs> into another person. <laughs> it's an exchange and everybody is a learner. And everybody is, if we're doing our job as musicians, I think that we, we have to always hear the world differently. We have to hear things that we think we know and have heard before differently. And we have to hear our vision of music differently every time we pick up the horn. And, you know, Milford Graves, another incredible teacher who I never worked with directly, but I saw him work with a, a lot of my very close collaborators in the improvisation scene in New York. And he said um, many times to young players, especially wind players, he would ask them this question when he'd hear them play. And he'd say, are you playing the horn or are you playing the column of air? And I just love that. I think that's one of the best teachings on wind playing because it's a question. It's a really good question. And it doesn't matter how great of a player you are, like you can always learn something from asking yourself that question. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, I would like to ask you another question about teaching from uh, Marie. Uh, she wants to know if when you are teaching more classical repertoire of flute, if Um, you find the same freedom in that music and do you teach it differently? How differently? All that stuff. Such an interesting question. I mean, yes, I teach it differently in that I would teach all musics differently because they're all distinct and they're all different, right? But to categorize classical music, to separate it from what we call contemporary music, and then to separate that from the vastness of classical musics outside of the Western European myopic narrow tradition doesn't make any sense to me. So I, I, I at once would teach different music differently because I have respect for the difference of different musics. And I also apply the same philosophy of music and of teaching to all musics, which is that we, the most respectful, the most dedicated way of approaching music is to discover To be, I mean, to be so humble at the foot of music is like, it's the, really the most beautiful feeling. And whether we're talking about the Bach Saraband or whether we're talking about a new piece by one of your colleagues in your generation that I've never met before, who's just given you eight pages of a brand new score, uh, which is one of my favorite ways to teach because I truly am discovering. Or whether it's music for which we do not have notation from the millennia 
of flute playing traditions that come before us that inform everything that we do, but that are so often left out of the conversation of what classical music is. Yes. You know, I love to think about notation, you know, like the very first instance of notation that we have is yes. this cuneiform tablet from 1400 BC in Syria. It's a, it's a stone tablet. And what we know is it was co-authored by a group of people. So like collectivity and, you know, shared authorship is a, it's an ancient idea. It's not a contemporary idea. <laughs> so when we talk about teaching music, we, 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 don't, we don't need to start in 1650 or in 1710. And we certainly don't need to end with 2021. You know, I mean, the great um, pianist and co-founder of, of AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians in in Chicago, which is, in my estimation, like the single most important experimental music organization in the world. They were history changing. Um, Muhal Richard Abrams said, may the past, present, and future be ever before us as one. Which I think is one of the most beautiful invocations of music. And one of the most beautiful invitations to teach. You know, we were speaking about this a little bit in class, yeah. at, at the end of class yesterday, that when we get up on stage, we are never alone. We're always with the presences of all of the people who've played that piece, yes, but also all the people who played this instrument, who've, who've like hurled the, 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 the innards of their soul through this piece of metal or wood or whatever. You can make a flute out of whatever, a carrot, <laughs> a piece of bamboo. We're on stage with all of those presences and we're on stage with the imaginaries. All the, all the future generations who will play this piece and who will play this instrument. So we're, we're in this trans-historical relationship all the time with all of these other presences. And when, you know, Muhal said, may the past, present, and future be ever before us as one, I feel like that's a really, really beautiful invitation to think about teaching differently. And, uh, yeah, so, to, to, I mean, to answer that question, um, music is music. And we, and by that, I don't mean that we reduce it to one way of teaching or one way of playing. I mean that we respect and relish music's difference from other musics and that we relish and respect how absolutely connected and interdependent all musics are. Oh yeah. The way all cultures are. Now it's time for music. Let's hear some excerpts from Density 2036 by Claire Chase herself. Uh, you will hear excerpts from many composers, Dai Fujikura, Marcus Balter, Jason Eckhart, Tishon Sori, George Lewis, Marion Diaz de Leon, Francesca Veronelli, Philippe Bellara, and Duyun. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
about Density 2036, the birth of the project and you know that moment as you describe it uh, in the program when hmm. you realize that flute needs to evolve. Yeah, I mean the, the project is also inspired by a question, you know, what will the density of the 21st century be? Um, what will that piece or that collection of pieces be for the 21st century that the Verez was for the 20th? And you know, it's less a, <laughs> I'm going to find this piece or create this, you know, literature, this repertoire that will be that cornerstone, touchstone, turning point for the flute literature. It's not that goal-oriented, really. It's, it's more like, let's generate a huge amount of new material, new ideas, new responses to the question, and let's put all of this good energy into the world of flute music and solo performance. And let's see what we discover. It's really that simple. You know, people ask me sometimes, well, you know, how do you, how do you manage such a massive project? And it is a massive project. It's 24 years long. I mean, we have about eight and a half hours of material generated already. And, and it's growing and growing. But in a way, because I set up the parameters of each year, there's a new cycle. It's new music. We premiere it, we tour it, we record it, we publish it, we put it out there and encourage other performances by other performers. And then the only real rule is that the next year we don't get to repeat anything. Like we can't, we're not allowed to get into some kind of rut or to repeat collaborations or we try not to repeat ideas. That's really the only parameter. And so in a way, it's like the simplest thing that I do in my life. I do a lot of very complicated projects. <laughs> and density is like very grounding for me because I get to come back to this thing, this old tune that I love very much. It's four and a half minutes of solo flute music. But I mean, it just like blew the roof off of my imagination when I was 13. I heard it for the first time. to that piece and think about what we can iterate from it. And that's a really, I, I just, I feel very, very lucky to be able to do that. And it's also just so fun to grow the musical family and work with different composers and sound artists. And it was such a joy this week to hear you guys play some of these pieces and play them so differently than I do and play them just exquisitely beautifully. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, there's lots more to say about the project, but in a nutshell, that's that's what it is for me. And, you know, this relates to Malin's question, too, about classical music. 
as we call it, you know, and my definition of classical music has nothing to do, by the way, with Western classical music. My definition of classical music is it's a, it's a tradition that supersedes itself. It's a, it's a music that outlasts its maker. And so defined that way, black American music is classical music. Classical Turkish music is classical music. Classical Uzbek music, classical Syrian music. It, these are all classical musics. And, you know, the beautiful thing about classical music is whether it's written down, whether it's a resourced tradition, whether it's been archived, whether it exists in a library, or whether it exists in people's bodies and their body memories, we get to go back to a thing that people have known for hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years. We get to go back to this thing that we think we know, and we get to discover it newly. And to find that way, there's... It, there's there's no difference between that <laughs> and the music that we're making, the brand new scores that you guys bring me today. Like it is all part of a continuum and an ecosystem. And so density is that for me. I get to go back to this thing that changed my life when I was a very young person and that I think I know. <laughs> and then every time I go back to it, I'm like, I don't know this at all. And I think I know what the flute is capable. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I'm a beginner. And that's the most joyous place to be every day when I pick up the horn. It's like, I'm a beginner. I know nothing. <laughs> wow. Wow. So impressive. How do you, question from Madden, how do you manage to stay excited about the repertoire you already know so well? What, you know? I mean, it's really that. It's, it's, it's that we go back to something that is familiar and we, you know, never put the foot in the same river twice. Like, it's, it's unfamiliar and it's mysterious. And, you know, my relationship with music in this way is, I think it's, I mean, it's very much like love. You know, when you love a person, you discover them newly each time you're with them. I think we, we, we rationalize our way into some kind of thinking that we're like repeating something. I mean, of course we go, we go, we go back to things that make us feel good, but the reason they make us feel good is because we are having an experience that is new and magical and also mysterious in that moment. We can't ever really be in possession of it. We can get closer to it. We get closer to the mystery, but we don't actually possess the mystery. And, and so music like love, uh, is, I mean, for me, it's, it's the essence of being alive. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> um, I would like to get more fluty. Okay. <laughs> Let's get fluty. <laughs> um, what flutes do you play <laughs> for the flutists out there listening? <laughs> so my main axe, as we say, in Brooklyn, is, uh, is, is a platinum pal that was played by Dorio Anthony Dwyer, who was the first woman to get a principal flute job in an American symphony orchestra. She's an amazing, powerful, fierce little lady uh, who passed away last year. Her spirit is very, very much with us. And um, I, I'm just so blessed to play this instrument. And um, I, I play a To get super geeky, I play a Lafan head joint um, on the on the platinum pal. And then I have, you know, I've got what I call my beater flute. I was talking to you guys about it's important to have some Ooh, really, really cheap right. flutes on hand that you can experiment 
with all kinds of crazy techniques. I mean, I also, when I'm working with composers, I encourage them to buy one on eBay for $100. Yeah. Or if they can't afford it, like, I will just buy them a $100 flute and show them some basics and then just let them play. Yes. So, I mean, I have a whole collection of those instruments. <laughs> I have, you know, I was telling you guys, I'm not very precious about the, about the, the bigger flutes. Um, I have a really cheap Trevor James alto that I love. Got it for like five, six hundred bucks on the internet, like I love 20 years ago. And it's, good. yeah, it's just yeah. fine. It's just fine. Um, and, uh, and I play a Jupiter bass and an Ava Kingma contrabass. And I have a whole, I mean, I have bags and bags and boxes and boxes of little tiny flutes, you know, wood flutes and clay flutes, flutes and water flutes and ocarinas and whistles. <laughs> And, you know, I like to pick up a flute everywhere that I go and try to learn something about it. <laughs> Can I get curious and ask to you what uh, is the craziest thing you had to do with your trash flute, <laughs> with your beat flute, sorry? Mm. What's the craziest thing? Well, huh. you know, I did try with my dear colleague, Eric Lamb with the composer Patricia Alessandrini many moons ago when we were working with Ice Ensemble to assemble a flute that was like the length of a room, like a room like this, you know, <laughs> like the length of a gallery. We wanted to create this long flute that would be played by multiple people. And we got, we, we got kind of, I wouldn't say we got far into the process, but I mean, I have pictures of it and it looks just like, it looks just insane. <laughs> but I realized that we really needed a, an instrument builder. We really needed an acoustician. <laughs> we needed like people that knew more than we did about how to construct this. But we sacrificed a lot of very cheap <laughs> flutes in the process. <laughs> I'll look up a picture and send it to you. Oh yes, please. <laughs> I have to look at that. <laughs> I mean, that's the, I think that's probably the craziest thing that that I've done. And of course I've smashed flutes and dragged flutes and, you know, I did the Namjung Pike dragging violins piece. I did that in a suburban shopping mall um, <laughs> for this, this crazy festival that the ensemble curated maybe 10, 15 years ago. And instead of dragging violins, we dragged this bag of sacrificed flutes from the Patricia Alice and Dream Project. <laughs> you know, so we've done things like that. I think the hardest thing I've ever done was a Paulina Olivero score. I think I mentioned this to you guys. It's a score that she wrote for me called To Claire. Mm -hmm. And it's Claire, make a sound you've never made before. And then Claire, make another one. Those are the two instructions in the piece. And then there's a repeat sign that says add infinity. <laughs> Hardest freaking piece I've ever played. So beautiful. <laughs> wow. You made a partnership with an association that plants tree. Whenever yes. uh, somebody plays a piece from Density 2036, Yeah. Uh, what's the next tree to be planted? Well, in fact, Mathieu and Sylvain, two students from our studio this week, played Daifujikura and Duyun from the catalog. And so we're going to plant those trees next week. And I just heard word of a, uh, another performance of the George Lewis emergent piece that happened in New York, actually, mm -hmm. a week or so ago. So that's that's going to go in the ground. <laughs> It'll start spreading roots. And and also uh, a young flutist in London reached out about a performance of Philippe Lara's Parabolas. So it's starting to happen, you know? I mean, we don't really have the mechanism yet. Density 2036 isn't an organization. Like, it's just me <laughs> and my collaborators. 
So we haven't really gotten the word out about this, but the name of the project is Density Roots. And the idea is that we plant a tree for each of the performances by flutists other than me. And my hope is that, um, you know, in 2036, this will be a way of archiving the life of a piece through the hands of a community, an ecosystem of performers, rather than simply through the publishing channel or through the agency or the individual websites of artists. Like, these systems exist. But what doesn't exist and what really, really mystifies me as to why it doesn't exist is a place for us to share knowledge about how a piece has evolved. And, you know, the site is very simple. There's no gatekeeping. You can just upload a, a, a YouTube um, or a concert link or a picture or whatever. The flutist feels is representative of what they've done. And it goes on this map that will be, I mean, my hope is that this will, this will be active for hundreds of years, you know, long past our lifetimes. And it'll be a way of saying, okay, yeah, you know, this piece by George Lewis that was written in 2014, in, in 3014, like, let's look at the, let's look at the tree. I mean, physically, to just look at that on a map, to look at the family tree of performances of that one piece. And um, I don't know that, you know, <laughs> they're going to be planting trees still in 3014, but at least for the next 20 years, I've committed to planting trees for each of, each of these performances. And, you know, it's a, it's symbolic, right? But I also love that it is, um, it's of the earth. It's also direct. It's also like, no, we're putting something in the earth. You know, this is not just a, an image. It's not just an idea. It's not just ideological. These are trees that are actually going into the ground. It's already happening. So, yeah, I'm excited about it. I mean, it's the very beginning part of the process. And it's connected to Density Seeds, this project to extract little parts of the, of the repertoire for, for very young flutists. Although anybody can play them. I mean, I, I played the seed, one of the seeds in, in concert um, a couple of months ago. And they make great pieces. I mean, it's, you know, just an excerpt of these larger works. And as we know, I mean, excerpts of larger works can be, can be whole dramatic experiences unto themselves. So my hope is that the, the younger flutists who enter, you know, through Density Seeds will also feel welcome to put their performances up on this shared database ecosystem whatever we're going to call it <laughs> so beautiful i think this is the definition of putting words into acts and i mean the most beautiful way i have ever heard to really um as we were talking during class um trying to change the world and being aware uh, of things that are bothering us and actually doing something about them yeah um, I have some other questions from from my friends here. Uh, <laughs> let me read them. I have such a bad memory. Oh, we're getting geeky again. Teresa asks, how do you integrate extended techniques in your daily routine? For example, like uh, warm-up, maybe. You know what? I make no distinction between extended techniques and just developing technique on the flute. And I also don't really make a distinction between technique and the expansion of my musical vocabulary, my flexibility, my openness, my dexterity, my sensitivity, like these are all things that we aim for as musicians. And to separate sensitivity from technique, it's just bizarre to me. Like it's just doesn't, it's like I do not compute. The same way that once you've extended the instrument, 
And I mean, we're not extending the instrument by playing a pizzicato or a multiphonic <laughs> or a, a lip buzz. We're not extending it. People have, just because it hasn't been notated, doesn't mean people didn't make those sounds in, in cavemen and women time playing bone flutes. We have no idea. You know, right. like how presumptuous of us. Just because it extends what we know, what we were capable of doing uh, yesterday and what we're now capable of doing today then, okay, so we've extended what we know. Well, then great. That's the definition of being alive. That's the definition of being a student of life and music, which I want to be, you know, until I stop breathing. So then what are we extending? (laughs) I mean, sorry to answer the question by picking at the question, but really to answer it, like I practice, I mean, yes, I practice arpeggios and tone and scales. And I also warm up every day by improvising. And... I use whatever vocabulary I have, and I try to extend that vocabulary. Yeah. Maybe the the question was about maybe some tips and tricks on uh, exercising things that are demanding on a daily basis. Maybe how do you manage, I don't know, your own psyche? (laughs) Yeah. My biggest piece of advice about this, and we did, I, I think, a bit of a broken record player about this because we talked about it a lot this week, is make a game. Yes, I love it. <laughs> play, 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 play. The meaning of the word play. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it means to practice really diligently, is to play. And to play with your full mind, imagination, intellect, body, spirit, energy, everything engaged. You know, which is why moving things up one click on the metronome to me is just like the most boring and ineffective way of practicing. Of course, sometimes, you know, if that's all we've got... <laughs> then that's what we can do. But I think real practice is about the stuff we were working working on this week. Like, so you have something that's terrifying. You have a lick that you can't play. You, there's a whole section of the piece that is just daunting and you feel lost and just, just jittery about it. Our job is to use our imagination to make an exercise of play out of every part of that that scares us. And, you know, there are very practical ways of doing that that we've talked about this week about, you know, just if, if it's a, if it's a five note lick, like make sure that you play it 50 different ways and then put it away and make sure that your imagination is engaged for every single 50, every, every one of those 50 iterations and memorize it, you know, and get it into your bones and then put it away. You do it in context later. But that for me, that's, that's the essence of practicing and being, we have to be organized in our mind also. I mean, especially when you get busier, um, if I'm not organized in my mind about what I need to practice and what matters the most, you know, usually the thing that, that scares us the most is the thing that matters the most. Oh, yes. And so go to that thing first and go to it with a playful and imaginative attitude. And, you know, today I had an hour and 15 minutes to practice. That's all I had. I mean, I I have enough material to practice for eight hours today (laughs) that I'm like super behind on. But you know what? I had a really good hour and 15 minute session and I practiced only the things that are really gnarly for me right now. And so, you know, we learn to be efficient about this. Of course, it's not fun to be efficient about it when you only have an hour and 15 minutes to practice. But, you know, even when I have my like blissful residency days, a few weeks a year and I have no schedule and no internet and I can just play what I want to play. It's still important to be organized in our minds about what we're doing. 
and to be really kind to our bodies Mm -hmm. about what we do when we step away from the flute. And step away from the flute, <laughs> especially when you're working on, you know, a lot of the syllabic um, and, and voice-oriented stuff that, that the studio worked on this week. Percussive. You know, percussive techniques, step away from the flute. Put the flute down and make it musical and make it make sense without the flute. Make it work in your imagination. Make it work in your body. And then think about how to translate into that, that into the flute. Because we can get in our way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Put that cookie down. <laughs> Step away from the flute. <laughs> one last question, maybe one last word of inspiration for our listeners. Our friends, musicians are there. Uh, how to get out the box, how to find their own path. So many things to say. Well, you know what I told you all yesterday before the concert about taking an exquisite risk is something that I think is really important to come back to. And this is, this is an invitation that I make to myself to before, before any concert, figure out which exquisite risk you're going to take. And I would take that a step further in talking generally about what advice I would give to, to young people today. And I would say, the most exquisite risk that you can take is to find your people and nourish them and support them and produce things for them that institutions, academies, the mainstream musical worlds of which we're a part will not produce for them and ask them to produce those things for and with you and make your community And love it and water it and feed it and tend to it and learn from it <laughs> and hold those people and their energies and their projects, their dreams, their wild dreams and all of their exquisite risks. Hold those things very, very, very dear to your heart. Those are the most important things. Those are the most important people. That is so much more important than any audition that you might win, any job you might get, any contract you might get. That matters more than anything. And it sounds simple, but we are not taught this. It's not only not encouraged, it's, it, we, we reinforce the opposite in school and in the professional world. And in the same way that, you know, we really need to do what matters most first in the day, <laughs> in our practicing, <laughs> in our relationships, in, in, in our relationship even with ourselves and, and our, our spiritual evolution. We need to do the thing that matters the most and that is often the most difficult the most beautiful. We need to do that first. And so at this point in your lives, when there's, there's so many pressures, there's so much chaos, there's so much unknown, so much uncertainty, there's so many people telling you who you are or who you're supposed to be, the single most important thing that you can do is be yourself and find a community to be in. Because these things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they're mutually inclusive and mutually loving. Being who you are And being who you are in community and supporting other people to be who they are in community. And no program and no job will do that for you. So we get to do that together. And that's the exquisite risk that I implore every single one of you to take. That is so beautiful. Thank you for 
this time with me. Thank you for this great piece of advice. Thank you for the love you share, not only for music, but every every time we get the chance to, to talk to you. It was a very great uh, week and a half with you. And I think I'm speaking from the whole class, uh, <laughs> the whole chicken class. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very beautiful time with you thank you so much such a pleasure <laughs>